Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Melanie is a 48-year-old teacher who comes in for follow-up after being seen in the emergency department for abdominal pain. She was diagnosed with diverticulitis and is now doing well. But during the course of the workup, uh, she was told that there was some blood in her urine and she needed to see you to discuss what to do next. The ED record shows she had a positive blood on her urine dipstick and the micro revealed eight to 10 red blood cells per high powered field. There was no evidence of infection and the remainder of the urine exam was normal. Melanie's generally healthy, trains for long distance running events has never been a smoker, and has no other risk factor for urologic malignancy. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today to talk about microhematuria is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and Executive Editor for Dynamed. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks so, for having me. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, he, micro, hematuria, microhematuria, um, these are terms that get thrown around. Uh, red cells on a urine dip are incidentally found often. Give us the definition of microhematuria and why we should care about it. So the definition of microhematuria varies from one organization to another, but probably the most commonly accepted definition is that there's more than three intact red blood cells per high-powered field on a properly collected and spun specimen. So let me unpack that a bit. When we say properly collected, what do we mean? So it should be freshly voided. It should be a clean catch midstream sample. Ideally, it, and this may surprise some people, it should not be a first void uh, collection. If you've been lying recumbent for an extended period of time and you get up, there's a certain number of people who will have red cells just from that. So you want this to be uh, when uh, sort of a middle of the day type collection also, it should not be after vigorous physical activity or sexual activity. Once the urine's collected, it's got to be, uh, you take about 10 mLs, you spin it down in a centrifuge, and then the sediment gets resuspended and analyzed. It's important that the red cells be seen on the micro. If you just have a positive uh, blood on the dip uh, finding, the dip reagent, that is not microhematuria. There are things that cause false positives there. And so uh, you want to make sure that you're looking actually at the micro. And why do we care? Well, while microhematuria can be found in many benign conditions or uh, uh, some, you know, completely harmless uh, and others signs of benign urologic disease, bladder cancer will be present in about two to four percent of people with microhematuria and you also can have uh, kidney cancers as well. So it's malignancy we care about. If someone has kidney stones and we don't diagnose it, okay, until it becomes symptomatic, we generally don't care about it. But cancer, you obviously want to pick up in a, in a uh, pre-symptomatic state, and sometimes your only clue is some red cells in the micro. All right, so you mentioned um, bladder cancer and kidney cancer. What are some of the less concerning causes of microhematuria? So 
benign causes we've mentioned before, you can certainly, some of them, uh, such as sexual intercourse or vis vigorous physical activity, any kind of uh, manipulation of the urethral tract, such as putting in a Foley or any kind of other kind of catheterization uh, can cause that. You often can get contamination from menstrual blood. Other things such as glomerular disease need to be considered. You can have glomerular nephritis, uh, certain nephropathies like IgA nephropathy, and in children, something like uh, Henoch-Shanline purpura uh, can be associated with hematuria. Also, uh, urinary tract infections, BPH, uh, stones, those, are, those three are probably the most common urologic conditions that would result in uh, hematuria. It's important that we remember that there was a time when some groups recommended doing screening urines on people, in particular adolescents, and we'd screen urines on them, and we'd almost oh, we'd get we'd often get hematuria, and you think, oh my goodness, what is it? And that we, we can chase our tail. So I guess the next question is, um, we've seen a patient, and for whatever reason, we now have blood found on a urine dip. Uh, what should we do next, and when should we involve a nephrologist or a urologist? Well, those are great questions, Frank, but I have to go back to your intro there on that, in, to this question. You know, you'll still find camp physicals or other things asking for urine. And I think most uh, physicians now, if when they do see these older forms, just put not applicable and cross it out. Don't, don't feel pressured to get a test that isn't warranted. It only, uh, you know, looks for trouble. But with that being said, I think one of the uh, key things is deciding when you need to have a nephrologist. And the key is what are the other findings in the urine sediment? The main factors that would make you think there's glomerular disease, and that's really when you want to have the nephrologist involved. The factors that suggest glomerular disease are dysmorphic red cells or red cell casts in the urine sediment, or if there's significant proteinuria. And therefore, it's really, before you decide what to do next, am I getting a urologist, a nephrologist, or both? You really need to double check the, the uh, micro results, looking at the sediment and seeing, are there these elements that would be concerning? With respect to the urologist, you know, the goal here is to figure out, do they need to have cystoscopy in particular? Because it was just a question of ordering imaging of the urinary tract, obviously you can do that yourself. Would you, what would you recommend ordering if you were going to check an imaging study? So the uh, standard uh, imaging study is going to be CT urography. Uh, you know, there are other tests that can be done if, for, if there are unusual circumstances, but that's your main, uh, main test that you would uh, be thinking about. In cases where there's a problem giving contrast, sometimes you can do retrograde studies, and again, your urologist is going to help you with that, and sometimes you can... Uh, do ultrasound or MRI, but CT urography is is the may, most frequently used test for those who are of a certain age, of which I am one. Uh, you know, IVP was the initial go-to test for so many years, and that has been replaced by CT urography. Any thoughts about sending urines off for uh, pathological review for transitional cell or kidney cells that that look like carcinoma? You know, that was something that was done. Uh, quite a bit in the past. It probably has less, I, I think the sensitivity and specificity on that is poor. And so what's happened is we've moved to a new system of trying to assess the risk of malignancy that is first based on defining risk groups 
and then there's specific workup based on what risk you're in. And this is a change. The AUA guidelines as recently as about three or four years ago were recommending that pretty much everybody who had microhematuria who needed evaluation was going to get cystoscopy to evaluate the bladder and CT urography to evaluate the upper tract. And now there's a more nuanced approach to things. And this is based on guidelines that were released by the AUA uh, in July of, the, of 2020. Right. So um, it sounds like we need to decide how how great the risk is ahead of time in, in our given patient. Melanie's a long distance runner, so that can cause hematuria. She's a woman and she, she may have uh, hematuria due to menstrual blood. She's a non-smoker, so her risk for transitional bladder cancer or transitional cell bladder cancer is fairly low. Um, do do does the guy does the paper give us any strong direction on what to do for her? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you know, in terms of thinking, you highlighted a number of important points. The, the starting point is: Are there any transient causes that can be uh, reversed or treated? And then what happens afterwards? So if someone has a UTI, treat the UTI. If they've got, uh, if a woman's menstruating, then get a sample after the menstrual period is over. So if you've eliminated, you know, potential reversible causes like that, the next step is the risk stratification. Now, while there's low risk, intermediate, and high risk, there's a special category, which is if you have a family history of renal cell cancer or some genetic uh, renal cancer syndrome, then you need imaging of the upper tract regardless of anything else that I say going forward. So when there's a family history, that overrides everything else. And those people need, need to be evaluated for that. Otherwise, low risk is defined if you meet the following criteria, age less than 50 for women and less than 40 for men. If you've, uh, there'd be never smoking uh, or less than a 10 pack year history of smoking, either of those. If there's only three to 10 uh, red cells per high powered field on a single urinalysis and no other risk factors for uh, cancer, and you mentioned some of those. And so, uh, you know, our patient here would be less than 50, non-smoker, and the red cells, we have one sample in the three to 10 range. So, so far, that would be a low risk situation. Let me just go over the other risk factors or the other risk situations. Intermediate is age 50 to 55 for women, 40 to 59 for men, uh, 10 to 30 pack year history of smoking. If there's 11 to 25 RBCs on a single year analysis, a low risk patient without a previous evaluation who has a repeat urinalysis that has three to 10. So if there's more than one urine sample, that puts you at intermediate risk. And again, if there are other risk factors for urothelial cancers. And high risk is if you're over 60, more than 30 pack years of smoking, or more than 25 RBCs on a single year analysis, or any history of gross hematuria. So that's pretty much how the assessment breaks down in terms of the various risk. Um, and then in terms of what you do with that, low risk patients, you can use shared decision making to either proceed with cystoscopy and renal ultrasound, or just repeat it in six months. In patients, who were initially categorized as low risk and did not have a workup, if on repeat urinalysis, there's more microhematuria, they then become intermediate risk and need to go ahead with cystoscopy and upper tract imaging. Uh, and that's what you would do uh, if they're intermediate risk in the first place, cystoscopy and renal ultrasound. And then finally, high risk patients 
should have cystoscopy and they probably need CT urography uh, in order to look for uh, renal malignancies. Okay, well, I think that that helps clarify what we should tell Melanie. We should offer her some shared decision-making because she's low risk and repeat her in six months and, and go from there. So, so Alan, thank you. A, a tough situation, very, very common, and at least now we have a, a fairly straightforward degree of, of, uh, of a guideline that helps us figure out what to do when we're stuck with a few red cells uh, on a urinalysis. Thanks so much. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. In patients who are at moderate risk for genitourinary uh, malignancies, the finding of microhematuria should initiate uh, a renal ultrasound and a referral for uh, cystoscopy. Join us next time when the entire podcast team shares their thoughts about their favorite episodes and thanks you, our listener, for joining us at Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine. Be sure to join Dr. Frank Domino, host of this podcast, for Primary Care Now, a PrimeMed virtual conference taking place December 3rd through 5th. Along with his colleague and friend, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, Dr. Domino will be a keynote speaker during this virtual learning experience. You can register for free and earn up to 19 CME CE credits by attending. Learn more at www.primed.com slash primarycarenow. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.